Maddie Mae Collins, one of four African-American girls tragically murdered in an infamous church bombing by white racists, was buried in, Al in, in Birmingham, Alabama. For years, family members kept returning to the grave to pray and leave flowers. In 1998, they made the decision to disinert the deceased for reburial at another cemetery. When workers were sent to dig up the body, however, they returned with a shocking discovery. The grave was empty. Understandably, family members were terribly distraught. Hampered by poor kept records, cemetery officials scrambled to figure out what had happened. Several possibilities were raised, the primary one being that her tombstone had been erected in the wrong place. Yet in the midst of determining what happened, one explanation was never proposed. Nobody suggested that young Addie Mae had been resurrected to walk the earth again. Why? Because by itself, an empty grave does not a resurrection make. And put very simply, dead people don't do that normally, do they? And again, this is why the resurrection of Christ brings us to the, the core of our Christian faith and causes us to ask some very personal questions about our faith and our belief in the resurrection. Which is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been and will continue to be one of the most studied and debated topics of theological, historical, and philosophic interest of all time. And it's this that makes Jesus' post-mortem appearances of such great interest and importance to those in the Christian faith. Turn your copy of God's Word with me to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. If you're in need of a copy of God's Word this morning under the chair in front of you or one of those near the chair in front of you, perhaps you'll find a, a simple copy of the New American Standard. You can look there in 1 Corinthians 15. And in verses 3 to 4 in 1 Corinthians 15, we see here the Apostle Paul quoting from an early creed that was passed along within the early church. And this is why he says here in, first, in verse 3, for I deliver to you. So this that he's delivering to them as of what's of first importance is that which he also received. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so the saying that he's making here isn't that which he himself had originated. This was a creed that was being passed along within the early church. And so Paul is now delivering this to them, that which he received. And it's of first, he says, importance as he's writing to the church in Corinth. And what was of first importance is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to 
the Scriptures. So that which had elevated itself within the earliest beginnings of the church was the truth that Christ died for sins, which is extremely important. There may be some who today like to say that, yes, perhaps Christ did die. They may question whether he was actually buried or not, and then they might even determine that perhaps he was never raised. But they definitely, when they talk about his death, would say that it was not for something. And that's utterly important within evangelicalism and true Christianity. If Christ did not die for sins, then he died needlessly. You see, the Word of God lets us know that our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever He pleases. He's a holy God. He's holy, holy, holy. And that man was born in rebellion against the holiness of God. Because of the condemnation that passed to all people through our forebearer in Adam. In Adam all sinned. And so Christ died for sins. The fact that we have need to even question that within our contemporary culture today is almost laughable. But if, if you haven't been paying attention, if you notice now what has historically and biblically always been accurately stated as being sins, today are described differently. They're described as diseases. They're described as diseases that need medication to help a person. I don't know if you're paying attention to this or not, but this is one of the ways in which our culture tries to blunt the actual fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's never forget that Christ died for sins. If you're here this morning and you've yet to name Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen, your sin of whatever it may be, name it, your sin of alcoholism, your sin of whatever it may be, while it may be defined as a disease from which you need medication, let me tell you, that disease is a sin because in your nature you were born fallen from God. And you're in need of a Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this earliest teaching that made its way through the earliest of the foundings of these early churches was that he died, he buried, and he was raised, and that according to the scriptures. Now the scriptures, one of the scriptures to which the apostle Paul was referring to is out of the book of Isaiah chapter 53, which describes very clearly the substitutionary death and the vindication after death of God's servant. Yes, that would be the servant there in Isaiah 53, Jesus who is the Christ, God's chosen Messiah. I want us to look at Isaiah 53 briefly this morning because it's important to make recognition that this that, was, that happened in real time in life, his death, his burial, and resurrection, they're making the, an, an attribution of that here to that being according to scriptures. So let me show you one of the scriptures. There's more than one, but we don't have time this morning to look at all of those. Look at Isaiah 53. We're going to do this briefly together. So in Isaiah 53, verse 1, Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 1 here begins with two questions. Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And given what we know from New Testament revelation, from John's Gospel, chapter 1, we have a, a better understanding of that prophetic message and that prophetic questioning that Isaiah gave for us here in Isaiah 53, verse 1. We see in John 1, verse 9 through 11, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. We see here in John chapter 1, Jesus Christ came to his own, meaning to his own people, to the Jewish people. But as John says, right there at the end of verse 11, they did not receive him. And the reason they did not receive him was because Jesus, God's servant, God's Messiah, from an Old Testament perspective, Isaiah 53 was scantily understood, if understood at all. They were anticipating the Messiah, the Christ, to come and to be a conquering ruler, a, a, a Lord who is going to reestablish the nation of Israel as a prominent nation on earth and the reestablishment of a Davidic kingdom as was promised to King David. They didn't realize that this servant had to come and first suffer and to die, which made Isaiah 53 very difficult for those to whom he came, very difficult to understand indeed. But we see here, following verse 1 that in Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant indeed had to come and die and be buried according to the scriptures. Now he right here in verse 2, for he grew up, if you go back to verse 1, and who has, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We see here that it's referring to he. The arm of the Lord is a he. The arm of the Lord is Christ. To whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? To whom was Christ revealed? Well, again, we saw in verse 9, in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 of John, that he came to his own. They did not receive him. And so, again, back to the, the first question who received and believed our message? Who believed the message that the suffering servant was going to come and die? And we see when the reality of that came. The one that, that he here, when he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. We understand that Jesus Christ came to his own and there was nothing about his natural birth or his, his natural appearance that would have attracted the Jewish nation to, to him as being the Christ, the Messiah. Nothing. Like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He came to his own. His own indeed received him not. In verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face... He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah now prophesying in the first person plural we. We did not esteem him. 
Isaiah is seeing this event as he's prophesying of this as if he's a part of the Jewish nation that esteemed him not. Isaiah sees the the nation's eventual response to this one who came from parched ground, who had no appearance, who had nothing that would attract them to him. And he clearly says right here that he was despised. God's Messiah, Christ, was despised. Verse 4, surely, he says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So while Jesus came to bear the grief and sorrow of the world, the only thought of the Jewish leaders and Jewish people is that he was smitten and afflicted of God as evidenced by his beating and his crucifixion at the cross of Calvary. Smitten, stricken of God. Because cursed was he who hung upon a tree. They believed that the suffering servant, the Lord himself, was accursed of God because he was hanging upon that cross there at Calvary. But in verse 5, we're going to see that Isaiah puts forth a different narrative for what actually did happen. In Isaiah 53, 5, he says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being, the chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The clear teaching of Isaiah here is that Jesus went through all of this piercing and crushing and chastisement and the enduring of scourging for us. For our transgressions. This is why he was pierced. For our iniquities. This is why he was crushed. For our well-being. This is why he was. The chastening of God fell upon him. And for our healing. This is why he was scourged. We see here very. Evidently and very clearly in verse 5, the reason that Christ came was as a substitute in our place. And thus he lived a perfect righteous life so that his righteousness as a result of his piercing and his crushing and all of these things, his righteousness could be rightly imputed to us when we come to him by faith. In verse 6, Isaiah continues, he says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All of us have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have gone astray like sheep, and we have turned to our own ways. Apart from God and apart from Christ, that's what every human being does. We try to find a way to make sense out of the life on this planet Floating in space. How did it get here? We don't know. Where does material last? Was it eternal? Is that how the material that came together that formed this earth with the gravity that holds it in perfect place? We're trying to figure these things out philosophically so that our lives can have meaning. And apart from the meaning, a biblical worldview that comes to us from the scriptures that, re- that tells us that like sheep we've gone astray, we've sinned against the holy God, and that our iniquities have fallen on him apart from knowledge of this, this knowledge that Isaiah gives us here in the New Testament clearly lavishes upon us, we are left groping in the dark. 
And so we eventually have turned sins into diseases that need medication. Because a, a worldview without God at play is just simply trying to do the best that it can to make sense of how we could be floating on a, on a rock out in this vastness of space that we're in. And desperately hoping to find purpose and meaning in life on that dark, in that dark space upon that glorious little space of earth. You following me? Isaiah knows that in the Lord and in Him alone is our hope because everything that has caused us to, to lack the knowledge that we need, everything, our sins, has fallen on Him at the cross of Calvary. This is good news, is it not? And this is why we call that news the gospel, the euangelion. The good news, that's all that means in the Greek, is good news. And in verse 7 and 8, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and, uh, and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Here we see an image of Christ going to the cross, staying silent, and willingly taking the very wrath of God upon himself. It was due us, and it fell upon him. Now here in verse 9, Isaiah predicts that Jesus was, again, after death, according to the scriptures, buried. And if you're going to have a proper resurrection, you have to have a proper burial, do you not? It says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus' grave was assigned with wicked men. There was a burial. This reminds us from the, from the New Testament, if you will, of Joseph of Arimathea. In, whom, in whose tomb, a, a rich man, who, in whose tomb Jesus was ultimately placed. And that according to scriptures. And then we see in verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, and he did, he will see his offspring. And as a result of offering himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. So if you die and you're buried, but yet you're going to see something, there has to be a resurrection back to life from the grave. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And this according to, as Paul said, and according to the creed that went through the early church, this is one of the, testament, the, the scriptures to which he must have been referring of his dying, his burial, and his rising. And so in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors 
Let me encourage you to take a closer look at Isaiah 53, given the opportunity. Give consideration of what Isaiah was seeing and giving prophecy to of that which was still to come. This is what Jesus Christ did in his death upon the cross at Calvary. And this is just one of the examples. There are other Old Testament passages that show that Jesus had to die according to the scriptures and was buried according to the scriptures. And then Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 15, turn back there with me. Paul then gives a list, a, sample, a simple list. There was more, but he didn't give all the names, but he gives a simple list of those to whom Christ appeared, these post-mortal appearances following his resurrection. These are whom we would refer to as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Beginning in verse 5, and, and that he appeared to Cephas. He appeared. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. So that which was of first importance to the churches was, was that he died and he was buried and he was raised. Verse 4, and then in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas. The importance of these post-mortem appearances of Jesus Christ following his resurrection, being back alive again, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So even at the writing of 1 Corinthians, when Paul was writing to the church, there were still those who were alive, individuals to whom other people could go to and say, I heard you were there among the group of 500. Did you see Jesus risen from the dead with your own eyes? There was a chance for those alive to go interrogate, if you will, the eyewitnesses. And within that small sphere in the community in which they live, there's, in my opinion, no doubt that that would have happened and would have taken place. Some of them did die. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Making reference there to himself, Paul, the apostle. And it was following these post-resurrection appearances, we see recorded for us in the book of Acts, the affirmation of this creed. So this creed that was of first importance at the planting of these churches, we see the affirmation of this in the life of the disciples as they went out preaching and proclaiming the good news of his being crucified, buried, and raised back to life. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, when Peter was preaching following the outpouring of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in Peter's preaching, his apostolic preaching, he said this, he said, God has resurrected this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So again, if there's no resurrection, then Peter is completely fabricating this story. And furthering a hoax that he and his other disciples must have all agreed upon. That hey, in order to save face, in order to not look really crazy, let's just go ahead and say that this happened. One would have to believe that or you have to believe that Jesus indeed rose from the grave as Peter himself said he saw with his own eyes. And again, Peter in chapter 3 of Acts verse 15, he said, You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of 
this. And this, was a, and this was one of the things that made the apostolic ministry of signs and wonders so apropos. So at the hands of the apostles, they went out in the planting of the churches and the proclamation of the good news. And they were healing people who were born blind or born deaf or were mute and couldn't speak. Arms would stretch back out. Lame men would get back up and rise and walk again, leaping and dancing and praising God. And so the affirmation of the apostolic preaching of this message was affirmed through signs and wonders, as Jesus himself had been doing at the hands of the apostles. When we get to Acts chapter 10, Peter at the house of Cornelius, preaching now to a Gentile audience, he says, God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They ate and drank with Christ in his post-mortem appearances after he rose from the dead. What Peter affirms in these post-resurrection sermons, his preaching and his witnessing, is that he and the other disciples, these eyewitnesses of Jesus, they are affirming personally and firsthand that they were witnesses of Christ risen from the dead. And Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, in his preaching and his teaching, affirms the same. We see in the Apostle Paul's preaching when he was on trial for his life before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 23. The charges that were made against him, he sums up here in chapter 23 verse 6 and he says that I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. We know that the Apostle Paul was preaching Jesus what? Crucified, buried, and raised. The Jewish leaders did not like that message. They imprisoned the apostles earlier in the book of Acts and an angelic messenger released them from said prison. The apostle Paul is preaching the same message and he goes on trial before them and he says very plainly the reason of his trial was for the hope and resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. And again Paul when he was in Athens and he was witnessing to the Epicurean and Stoic, uh, Stoic philosophers he said in verse 31 to them, he said that he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul said that God's proof to all people was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And since the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. We see here in this passage that God has indeed fixed a day of which only he knows and in which he will judge the world, the world of people. And he's going to judge a world of people against the standard of righteousness that only his son Jesus Christ could attain. And because of sin, we will be found guilty apart from Christ and all who are found though possessing a righteousness not their own a righteousness that only could come to them by way of Christ and that through imputation which means that you believe 
You believe in God's Son. You believe in the message of the gospel. You believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth and that he did live a perfect, righteous life. He was the fulfillment of the law, the law that no man could ever keep. I mean, we just start with thou shalt not lie. Anybody else guilty? Am I the only one here this morning? Let me see your hand. No, you don't, no need for self-incrimination. And we could go down to the Ten Commandments. It's without question, all men have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but one, the man Christ Jesus. And as, as such, he fulfilled the law. And that's why God could rightly pour out his wrath upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because he was the spotless Lamb of God ordained for that purpose. And by his stripe, through his beating and his dying and his blood shed at the cross of Calvary, we are healed. We are healed from a sin-cursed nature that we received at birth. We are healed from that nature, and we are given new life and new hope in Jesus Christ, a new nature. The scripture says, the old is gone, and behold, all things have been made new. Again, there is hope. There is good news in the resurrection. But all who reject the Son of God, that day of judgment is coming. He will judge the world. And he will do that in righteousness. And he will do that through a man whom he appointed through resurrection from the dead. And we have the opportunity this morning, if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Recognize that he is the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. The Lamb of God who died upon the cross at Calvary for sin's curse. If you've never done that, you have a chance to do that even today. Today could be the day of good news for you. The day that the good news of Christ and his substitutionary death could be manifested through imputation. His life imputed to you freely by simply coming to him and crying out to him. Repenting of your sins. It's not just a disease. It's a rebellion against a holy God. And repenting of that and crying out to Christ. And accepting his life freely now and forever. Amen? So don't leave this morning without doing that. We also see very clearly the need for the belief in the resurrection. This isn't just that, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good guy. He did good things. Listen, if he didn't do what he claimed to do, and I don't have built into my sermon this morning the many times in the New Testament when Jesus himself said that he was going to be handed over, delivered, crucified, buried, and that he was going to raise again on the third day. He articulated that very plainly to his disciples in advance. And so he can't be a simple, a simple good guy because if he did that in advance and he knew that he wasn't going to do that, that's kind of not a good thing. We refer to people like that as liars, and liars can't be good guys. I mean, they can't be perfect guys, right? Couldn't be the son of God kind of a guy. But listen to the articulation of Paul here in Romans 10, 9 and 10, and notice the necessity within biblical Christianity, of understanding and believing in resurrection. I mean, no resurrection, no gospel. No resurrection, no true salvation. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. A confession is one thing. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
you will be saved. Again, no belief in a resurrected Jesus, there can be no genuine salvation. And so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ being as essential to the Christian doctrine and faith as it is, it only makes good sense for we as God's people to be prepared to give an account for that hope that we have within ourselves, right? What did Peter say in 1 Peter 3.15? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, give Christ first place in your hearts, believers. Sanctify Him as Lord, as number one, as your life and your heart. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. And sometimes they may not ask. You might invite yourself in, perhaps. Hey, if you were to die tonight and stand before a holy God in heaven and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Perhaps on occasion, if you're on a plane ride somewhere and, you're, and you open your book and you're reading your book and the guy next to you happens to see the, the cover of your book and, and he says, oh, what, what are you reading? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> let me tell you. And so you find a way to get in and have a reason to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet, yet what? with gentleness and reverence. One of the things that breaks my heart the most is whenever you see on the news those so-called Christians down in Florida with their hate signs bashing people, trying to think that bashing people into, into the gospel is the way to go. It gives all of God's children a bad name and a black eye, unfortunately. We are to do this with gentleness and reverence. So I want to give you this morning three lines of evidence that would support Christ's claim to rise again on the third day if someone was to ask you from the Bible, say, using the scriptures, using the Bible, how would you do this? Now, I've done this for you before. I do this, I skip this about every second or third year. So, But this is important information, so perhaps this is a repeat for some of you here this morning. Perhaps it's not. I don't know. I went and I checked. I did not go over this the last two years, so I've, I must have skipped two, but I'm coming back to it on the third this is really important information. If a non-believing friend of yours came to you and they said, well, why do you believe in the resurrection then if it's so central and so key? And you just say, well, because I just believe it. This will give you an opportunity to go to the scriptures and from the scriptures give some cogent answers to some of those questions that perhaps you get asked. Okay, and the first one deals with a proper burial. Because if you don't have a proper burial, you can't have a what? You can't have a resurrection. And what we know is that all four gospel writers tell us that Joseph of Arimathea, remember that name, asked permission of Pilate to take the body of Jesus down from the cross and that he wrapped Jesus' body with linen cloth and then laid him in his own tomb. And then Joseph rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. So when we look at the Gospels, we find multiple independent accounts of this burial story. And again, the reason this is significant is that it places a dead Jesus in a tomb, and most significantly, it was placed there by an individual, by an individual named Joseph of Arimathea. Because Joseph of Arimathea was a member of a council who planned originally to have Jesus murdered. Joseph was a part of that 
community council that planned to have Christ murder. In other words, what this tells us about Joseph of Arimathea is that he's an insider. So the the significant point about Joseph of Arimathea is that he would not be the sort of person who had been, would have been invented by Christian legend or Christian authors to make up a phony story of Jesus' burial. Because Joseph was a specific person belonging to a specific group of people whom you could go to in that time and ask questions of if there would have been Doubt as to Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body down and placing him in his tomb and rolling a stone across the face of that tomb. There's literally no biblical, logical, or historical proof that Jesus was in any other way buried than by Joseph of Arimathea and placed in his tomb. So what makes this really unique is that if legend was at play here and the disciples were like, hey, we need to kind of create a a hoax of a story. In all four Gospels, they articulate that it was Joseph of Arimathea, a known figure who was on the council that desired to have Jesus put to death. It would have been made way more sense for them if they would have done something or assigned that to somebody else, like say, well, yeah, Jesus was crucified and buried, and, um, and let's say Royce Wright here of Broken Arrow went and asked permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross, and then Royce went and buried him in his own tomb somewhere. And the reason why that's important is because everybody would have said what? Who's, who's Royce Wright? We don't know Royce Wright. Where's Royce from? Where... And where would Royce's grave be? Oh, hey, you just have to trust us. A guy named Royce Wright asked permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross, and he went and buried him in his own, in his own tomb. That's the beauty of Joseph of Arimathea. Read the scriptures. He was on the council that desired to have Jesus crucified. He had a change of heart somewhere along the way. He then asked permission to take Jesus' body down and put him in his own tomb, and the stone was rolled across the front of it. Joseph of Arimathea, a proper burial. That's one of the realities we see embedded in the Scriptures that proffer solid evidence of a true burial that then was preceded by a resurrection. Amen? Secondly, another one that we see in the Scriptures is that the empty tomb was discovered by women. The gospel accounts agree that an empty tomb was discovered by women. All of them agree to this. And when you understand the role of women in first century Jewish society, you understand that the gospel writers would have never made up an empty tomb story and purposefully used the testimony of women to validate such a claim. That's actually the last thing they would have ever done in that culture if they truly wanted someone to take their story seriously. Women were on the very lowest rung of the societal ladder in first century Palestine. A woman's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish or Roman court of law. So even if a woman would have been an eyewitness to a murder, she was not even allowed to testify in the court of law because they would not have esteemed her testimony as being worthy and trustworthy. 
In light of this, it's absolutely absurd to think that the gospel writers would have a woman as their first and chief eyewitness to an empty tomb if they were trying to purposely deceive people into believing a resurrection story. Any later legendary account would have certainly portrayed male disciples such as Peter or John as being the first ones discovering the empty tomb of Jesus. What this shows us is that the gospel writers just faithfully recorded what actually happened regardless of the facts, even if it wasn't what they would have preferred in terms of social and cultural acceptability, they simply recorded and wrote down faithfully what actually happened. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. So again, there's, there is biblical, logical, historical proof that points to an empty tomb where Jesus once lay. These are not the things that people would make up along the way if they were trying to pull a hoax over the world. Thirdly, the disciples who willingly die for their beliefs. You've probably heard this quote before, people will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. But people won't die for religious beliefs if they know absolutely their beliefs are false. Yet after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the disciples who became initially somewhat scattered all of a sudden regathering and committing themselves to spreading a very specific message that Jesus the Christ was the Messiah of God who died on the cross, was buried, returned to life, and was seen alive by them as we just examined in the early apostolic preaching. These men were willing to spend the rest of their lives testifying to these truths without any payoff from a human perspective whatsoever. They faced a life of hardship. They often went without food. They slept exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned, and eventually most of them were executed for their belief in Jesus Christ. And the majority of these things we, we find embedded in the scriptures. History tells us that Matthew was killed in Ethiopia as a result of a sword wound. That Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being dragged by horses through the street until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because of his faith in Christ. James, Jesus' brother and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown down from the top of the temple. And having survived the fall, history tells us that the enemies of the gospel then came and beat James to death with a club. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Rome for his faith in Jesus. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, a missionary to Asia, was whipped to death for his continuing to preach about Christ who was risen from the dead. Jude was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. And Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas the traitor, was stoned and then beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ. History tells us that Paul the apostle was tortured and then beheaded by the emperor Nero while in Rome. And so we'd be forced to ask 
the obvious question, for what? I mean, why would these men continue to proclaim and preach this message? What for what? What was the upside? Just for simply for good intentions? To go ahead and carry out this great hoax, this great scheme that they must have all gone in like musketeers, all for one and one for all? Hey, we know it's not true, we know it's fake, but let's go give our lives for it. It just doesn't seem logical that anybody would do that. And I'm, I'm willing to bet there's not one person in the room this morning that would willingly die for something they knew absolutely was false. Anybody? I don't think so. I'm out. I'll tell you why. It's that there's no other adequate explanation that any of us could conceive of, but it's that these men were absolutely convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus Christ alive from the dead just as they proclaimed. They were absolutely sure. And thus they were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. And these men were in a unique position not only to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know with 100% certainty. And it seems to me when you've got at least 11 credible people, remember he appeared over 500 at one time, right? But when you have at least 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain, what was their gain? Somebody come tell me afterwards, what was their gain? Oh, the great notoriety. The great Peter who was crucified on an X upside down for preaching Jesus. And he knew that 2,000 years later, we'd still be talking about him. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Nobody is doing this. They had nothing to gain. They had everything to lose. And they lost their life. But what did they indeed gain? Nothing to gain? <laughs> no, they had everything to gain. They gained life everlasting before the only true and living God. Because Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No man comes to the Father except through him. They had everything to gain, but from an earthly perspective, perspective, they had nothing to gain, everything to lose. They knew for certain that this was absolutely true. An indisputable burial, the testimony of the women at the tomb, and the life transformation of these disciples, all embedded within the scriptures, give us ample biblical evidence for the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, this isn't the stuff legends are made of. Well, let me just ask you, let's make this personal. Who, who do you say Jesus is? Do you really believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that Christ himself rose from the dead on the third day as he claimed that he would do? As you sit here in this room this morning... Who do you say Jesus truly is? And it's my exhortation that those of us who do believe this to, true, to be true, that we would then indeed live as they lived. I would say the apostles were willing to live according to truth, come what may. And I want to encourage us to live as the apostles did before us with full conviction of this truth ever upon our lips, never to be ashamed of the reality that we believe that God raised him from the dead. 
So that in a saturated social media culture, you always see people put out there, I believe Jesus raised from the dead, and if you do too, you will like this, you know. And we see it, and we kind of go, oh, I don't know if I want to like that. Nah, no, you slide, and keep on sliding by. Well, there may be reasons you don't want to like it, but I would at least ask you to question within your heart of hearts uh, the why. I mean, sometimes we might be afraid of just losing a little social street cred by identifying ourselves so openly with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. I want to encourage you to remember those who went before us in the faith, beginning with the apostles. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. We can't earn anything, but we owe him everything. Everything that we have that's good in our lives, brothers and sisters, is because of Christ. Because apart from him, as they say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's over, there's nothing else, and then to their great surprise, and then they die, they realize, oh, there is a whole lot else. The Bible says that all who perish apart from Christ will perish in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A conscious, conscious reality of great torment and suffering. In a place the Bible describes as hell, where a place for all eternity, the perfect justice of God will be meted out perfectly for all eternity to the glory of his name. That's the reality of what the biblical worldview would say. So again, don't leave here this morning. If you've yet to put your trust in Christ and making him your personal Lord and Savior, you've got everything to lose. Everything. If the word of God is true, if what Isaiah saw and foretold came true as we see in the New Testament, if that one prophecy alone was true as we see it is in the New Testament, you've got everything to lose. But in Christ, you have everything to gain. And you can do that today. So find me, find one of the elders, Royce, Pastor Matt, Nathan. Where's Brother Nathan? He, right back there. He read, led us in the reading of God's Word. Come find one of us. We would love to discuss how you can know Jesus Christ intimately and personally today. Church, He has risen. Let's go live resurrected lives to the glory of His name.